I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Romans again, if you still know where that's at in your Bibles. It's been a while. We took a break for a summer series, and I, for one, I hope not the only one, am very excited to return to our study of the book of Romans. And if you, again, do not have a copy of God's Word with you, I hope you will avail yourself of one of those pew Bibles and follow along. It's found on page 939 in the pew Bibles, Romans Chapter 1 is where we'll uh, go this morning. Years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Australia for the summer. It was a great trip. There was an Australian pastor there that, um, I didn't know this was a thing, but I guess there is an opportunity that if you know the right people and you are in Rome, you can actually get a private audience with the Pope. And he was given that opportunity, and he took it up that he would get a private audience with the Pope. Found out when he got there, there were actually 6,000 other people that thought they were going to get private audiences with the Pope. But, but what I was going to share with you is, is if your ticket had a special writing on it, you had an aisle seat, which meant that you actually did get a photo opportunity with the Pope. And you would also perhaps have the opportunity to share a word with him, ask a question, or give a statement. Well, interestingly enough, this friend was a pastor, and um, you know, while our Catholic friends have a lot in common with us in terms of what they believe, if you were to talk to a Catholic or you have a Catholic friend or you are a Catholic, um, you'll know that as a Baptist, you will find that there are a lot of things we believe the same about in terms of the inspiration of the Scriptures, the deity of Jesus Christ. But actually, the difference would be what we're studying in this book, the book of Romans. So, back to the friend, he decided this little statement he would give to the Pope would be this, Rome needs Romans. <laughs> it was actually a kind of a clever statement, Rome needs Romans, uh, giving that to the Pope. If you had an opportunity, maybe you wouldn't even avail yourself to say something to the Pope, would you say something like that? The truth of the matter is, Rome's not the only one that needs Romans. East Brandywine Baptist Church needs Romans. Downingtown needs Romans. Chester County needs Romans. The United States of America needs, okay, you're with me now, Romans. We all need Romans. And so here we are again in the book of Romans. We've taken a break. We got all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, and now we're going to catch up. So I hope you were able to follow along in your Bible, page 939 of the Pew Bible. Hear God's word. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven among all ungodliness, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so are they without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision actually becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have a written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now we've arrived at our text for this morning. Some of you are saying, about time. We just needed to catch up. Verse 21 is our text for this morning. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God bless the reading of His perfect word. Romans 1. And now we have read all the way to chapter 3, verse 26. I hope you've been keeping up, but I want to remind you that this first section is what we were dealing with for months. After the prologue in verses 1 to 7, verse 8, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we can put one word to describe those three chapters. Here the word is condemnation. I would not be surprised at all that you left some messages during those first few months of in Romans, in Romans where the messages were not very encouraging because there's not a lot of encouragement in chapters 1 to 3. But that's on purpose. In fact, what the Lord does through the Spirit of God is Paul is going to take three groups of people and he's going to say, all of you are equally guilty even though all of you might not be equally bad. You know, one t argument that people like to put forward is, well, I agree with this equally sinful and we all need a savior, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, that's not what Paul's actually saying. Paul's saying there is degrees of badness. And praise God for his, his general grace, his common grace, that none of us are as bad as we could be. But what he is saying is we're equally guilty even though we might not be equally bad. Now, you may recall this describes three different groups of people that he basically takes to task. In chapter 1, verses 18, 8 to the end of the chapter, he deals with what we could call the pagans or the unreached nationals. These are people that didn't have special revelation. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have teaching about a Messiah. But they did have general revelation, and they did, we're told in chapter 2, have a conscience that registered right and wrong for them. And he says to them that these are guilty before God. And he begins to describe how once they rejected general revelation, once they rejected that and they were not thankful in their heart, what they could have learned from creation, what does it say? That the consequence was idolatry, sexual disorientation, and a perverse mind. Now, I reminded you, and I want to remind you again, that the consequence or the wrath of God is not because of the idolatry, the sexual disorientation, and the perverse mind. Some come to Romans 1 and they say, look there, that's why God's mad. Actually, what happens is because they rejected and would not keep God in their knowledge, they were not thankful, he turned them over to this. Be similar to a teenager who is so upset with their parents that they say to their parents, I don't want to ever see you again. And the punishment the parents give that child is to never allow them to see them again. What you see in Romans 1 is people who rejected the knowledge of God and were not grateful for his creative power and his eternal power that's demonstrated in creation, and they were given over to their lust. Well, in chapter 2, you can almost imagine these self-righteous moralists 
who are looking at all these bad pagan sins going. And then in chapter 2, Paul is going to turn right to these self-righteous moralists. And he's going to say, you are riding on your holy horse, but you are doing the same things. You're hypocrites, and you might not be equally bad, but you're equally wicked because you have not kept the law that you have. And then in chapter 3, it seems like another group, he speaks directly to the Jews. The Jews would admit that they had sinned, but they had this caveat. We're God's chosen people. So at the end of the day, there's going to be a little bit of universalism that God's just going to let us in because, we're, after all, we're his chosen people. But Paul, masterfully, under the inspiration of the Spirit, takes all three groups and he lays them out into an equal playing field and he says, the pagan Gentile nationalist who has no religion, the self-righteous moralist and the Jew who has the law and all of the special blessings that God had given on his chosen people, they're all equally guilty and under condemnation. It's a wonderful sermon, isn't it? <laughs> It's condemnation that's placed on the shoulders of all people, intentionally so. And what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to create tension so that when you got to verse 21, not only were you excited that I was almost done in my reading, but you were excited because finally there's some good news. You'll notice in verse 21, these two words, but now, say that with me, but now, it's a transition point. But I don't want you to miss this. Because as he concludes that everybody is under sin, he quotes this Old Testament psalm where he says that none is righteous. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Not even, how many? So no one can say, because I have this privilege, or I had that, or I didn't do that sin, that I'm closer in getting into heaven and having a relationship with a holy God. We're all equally without excuse. We're all equally guilty. He uses six body parts to describe this. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the eyes. Do you see that? He's just building it in this psalm. You're thoroughly wicked. You know, I believe that there's ever a doctrine that should be emphasized right now, and there are different time periods in culture where certain truths are being under attack and need to be really emphasized. For instance, you'll notice that in the early 2000s, there was a big emphasis on articulating the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of our confession on the atonement and the sufficiency of the atonement. And that's a wonderful renewal and revival to articulate those because of the emergent church and those that were piercing and pushing against those biblical truths and those foundations. But if I were to suggest a doctrine that ought to be articulated now, it would be the doctrine of anthropology. Anthropology is just a big word to say the doctrine of humans, the doctrine of man. What are we really like in the core? And there's no compliment here, folks. So, so what Paul does is he takes the religious one, he takes the pagan nationalist who has no revelation except general revelation, he takes the Jew, takes the self-righteous moralist, and he says, all of you have the same problem. It's your heart. Evil's coming out of it constantly. And so you all are under condemnation, and that's how verse 20 ends. 
Martin Luther talks about this passage, verse 21 to verse number 26, and he calls it the center of the epistle of Romans, but he also calls it the center of our Bible. Now, he's not talking about chronologically. He's not saying that this is like the center, like the book of Psalms or anything like that. He, he's saying this is the core. Now, when I read it, I hope you thought, man, that's a lot he just said. He didn't even take a breath. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Paul. Do you notice there was no punctuation like periods besides commas in verse 21 to 26? It's one, Paul loves these glorious run-on sentences, right? I used to try to tell my English teacher that Paul did it so I could do it, but it never worked. But right, Paul loves these glorious run-on sentences. And, and, and it's very densely populated here, this passage. But I want to suggest to you that this passage is one that you ought to try to put to memory. Used to be, in Baptist tradition, that when you were being ordained, an ordination is a time where other pastors or professors in seminaries get to test you to see if you're orthodox. So, for, for instance, in my case, in 2003, I sat before an ordination council that lasted for about four hours, and they just pepper you with questions over and over again to find out your theology. But there used to be a Baptist tradition where you had to memorize this passage Sometimes the emphasis was on memorizing it in its original languages, and you had to defend it by expressing your understanding of each of these vocabulary words that are the vocabulary of our salvation. There's about eight of them that I want to point out to you in this passage, but I want to remind you that this passage, if you could memorize it, you would be well on your way to being able to worship our Lord with greater further and greater fervor and warmth because of your understanding of what it costs to redeem your soul. Now in this passage, I just want to give you an introduction today and we're going to try to take it apart the next two weeks following. So it gives you time to memorize it. So let's say these first two words again, but now. Say it with me, but now. So you're well on your way to memorizing this passage, right? So you're going to leave here and you've got two words down. Say it again, but now. Whenever you see that conjunction, it's a word that reverses the statement before it. So if you were struggling under three chapters of condemnation, you ought to get a little spring in your step now. In verse 21, where we hear, but now. Say it with me, but now. It's a bringing of hope where there was none. I want you to see this too. But now functions in the New Testament. We see this phrase in Ephesians chapter 2, as well as a couple other places it's a wonderful reminder that there's a first time in history that's taking place. So what the author is saying is, but now, this first time in history, and the last, by the way, there was an unheard of approach to God that has been revealed. There's a divine righteousness that is available to be gifted to people, and this was not known until now. I just gave you a mouthful. But say the two words with me again, but now. There, there's a moment here where there's been something revealed that's never been revealed before. It's never been announced before, so this ought to be a drum roll moment. There's a righteousness, God's righteousness, that's actually available that wasn't known about before. That's the good news. Paul says, that's what I'm ready to deliver to you people in Rome. I want to announce to you the good news. So, so here's the tension in this passage. I'm really trying to build up to it, okay? I'm struggling a little bit, but stay with me. Here's the tension of this passage. And I'm going to give it to you in a sentence. 
How can a just God justify unjust people and still be just? That's the tension. How can a just, righteous God make unrighteous people just and righteous without becoming unrighteous or unjust himself? I know it's a mouthful, but that's what's packed into this passage. And it's the big question we all should answer. And the answer to it is justification. Say that word with me, justification. And this passage is going to start a second section of the book of Romans. So if you're trying to track and you're taking good notes in your journal, the first section goes from verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And it deals with condemnation. But this second section... Listen, dear people of God, this is the good news. From chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to chapter 5, verse 21, it's dealing with justification. How can a righteous, just God make unrighteous, unjust people righteous without becoming unjust himself and still be just? This passage tells us what, how that happens. So I believe this is the center of the Bible. And with that in mind, I want us to see that God is the one who is rescuing his people. And I want to look at one of these terms this morning. When you see the words, but now, he's announcing something, but in these few verses, he gives us some precise theological terms that I want you to memorize and love, and maybe they will become shouting words for you. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression. I've mentioned to you on many occasions, I grew up in a southern church. It was a Baptist church. It wasn't part of the denomination. It was a Southern Gospel church. They were very verbal, okay? Um, so I was accustomed to a lot of feedback. And I love you folks, but I can hardly get a good holy grunt out of you, right? You know, every now and then I'll get a little hmm. But, you know, it's always great when we have a guest that joins us and amens me and I preach longer. But, but we, had, we had words that the preacher would call shouting words. He'd say it kind of like that. Church, this is a shouting word. I'm going to give you eight shouting words, okay? They're right here in our text. You ought to mark them. You should have a good understanding about the precise definition and what these mean in terms of your salvation. We could call them, here's the big heading, the vocabulary of your salvation. Here's the big heading. I give you eight words right here in this passage. If you wanted to have a good working definition, what we call soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, you need to know what these terms mean. And if they're not already, I hope they'll become shouting words to you. Maybe weeping words. Here they are. Mark them. I'm just going to work through the passage and show them to you. Right there in verse 21, circle the word righteousness. This word righteousness and its cousins, just, justification, are mentioned over 60 times in the book of Romans. I've told you that if you took the words and counted them, about every hundredth word, you're going to see one of these words that means just or righteous or justification. Second word is faith. Look at verse 22. Circle the word faith. Next word is justified. Circle the word justified in verse 24. Fourth word is grace. Same verse. Fifth word is redemption. Same verse. Sixth word is propitiation. Same verse. And in the same verse, I want instead of one word, I want you to, to, to circle two words because I think this is really important. His blood. You see that? 
That actually has come under attack. There's all these words have had the time where they've come under attack. And finally, forbearance. You see that in verse 25? This is the vocabulary of your what? Are you with me? The vocabulary of your salvation, all right? These are terms that could be shouting words, all right? And I hope they will become that. I want to look at just one today, and it's the word justification. And the reason I picked that one out, even though it's kind of in the middle of this text, it's like the backbone. It's like the spinal column that holds all of it together. That's the mega theme of the book of Romans, justification. And just so you understand how these words, if we don't, as God's people, be good stewards of the very, there can be a loss. Do you realize that in church history, a thousand years, almost a thousand years, you would have been hard-pressed to find a believer who could give you a biblical definition of this word justification. That was prior to the Reformation. And then... Martin Luther, the Spirit of God, opens up his heart as he studies the book of Romans and Galatians, and he all of a sudden understands justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And now we have a wonderful joy of affirming those solas, amen? But these words can be lost. Do you remember when Paul told Timothy, his young protege, he said, keep keep the form of sound words. In other words, don't let the terminology be lost. Sometimes people can say, well, it's the ideas that count, not the words. But listen to Jesus in John 6, 63. He says that my words, they are life. He uses the Greek word ramata, which means the very words of Scripture. They give life. So this vocabulary is important. So I just want to give you four scriptural truths as we conclude about this word justification. It's really just a flyover of this text. I promise you, this will be just a few minutes Here's the first one. Justification means doing the obligations that God has given you by his law perfectly. To be justified means, stay with me, don't throw anything at me yet. Justification means doing God's law perfectly as you and I are obliged to do. I'm going to prove that to you. Turn back to Romans 2. Verse 13, this is the first time this word justification is mentioned, and I want you to see it in your Bible. Verse 13, he says in Romans 2, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the what? Of the law who will be justified. This is really important. The word justification means to be declared righteous. This passage says the only people that can be justly declared righteous are people who have kept the law perfectly. In other words, they have completed what they're obliged to do, and every human is obliged to keep the law perfectly. That's what he said for three chapters. Now, I know that weighs on you, but there's no joy in but now if you don't understand what justification means. So to use some sporting analogies, that means you need to, if you're a bowler, you need to always bowl a 300. If you're a golfer, you need to get a hole-in-one on every hole. If you shoot targets, you need to hit the bullseye every time. Play baseball, you need about a thousand. What, what he's saying is there's no room for error. Now, why is this important? Because I will not appreciate justification if I do not understand to be justified, to be declared righteous, means that I have to keep the law of God, what, what, what way? Perfectly, I've got to fulfill all my obligations. 
So keep that in mind. I know some of you are starting to get tense, but let's let the tension hang there for just a moment. It makes it more of a shouting word, I promise. Secondly, justification is about being justified in God's sight. Turn to chapter 3, verse 20, where it's mentioned again. Eyeball it, please. I want you to see it in your scriptures. Chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in whose sight? You see it in your text, or are you just trusting me? It says, no human being will be justified in whose sight? In God's sight. Second thing about justification, justification is about being declared righteous in God's sight. It has nothing really to do with how I assess myself. It has nothing to do with how my friends or family or coworkers assess me. They may think I'm a very righteous, moral person. The people in my neighborhood may think I'm the best guy that ever moved there. I think they do, actually. No, I'm kidding. They, they may. But justification has nothing to do with anybody's assessment, not mine or anyone else's. It has to do with God's assessment. So when we talk about justification, we're not talking about other people being pleased with my activities or my behavior or my way of life. We're saying God's assessment. So second truth about justification is justification in whose sight? Okay, so first truth is justification is being declared righteous by God, or that's the second principle. First principle is being declared righteous because we have kept the law what way? Okay, the third one. And in the first service, John Malia shouted this out early on. So he took my third point, and I had to come back around to it. But no one shouted it out that I know of this time. The third point is nobody's in this category. <laughs> third point about justification is nobody has kept the law what way? Nobody has been justified in whose sight? I'll prove it to you. Look at it again, verse 20 of chapter 3. For by works of the law, how many human beings? No human being will be justified in whose sight? God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Folks, this is really bad news. And if justification is ever going to be a shouting word for you, you've got to hold these things in tension. I'm only giving you three of the four, but let's review. Justification is keeping the law of God, which way? Perfectly Secondly, it is being justified, declared righteous in whose sight? God's sight. Thirdly, how many people are in that category of being justified? None. Let's review. Not the self-righteous moralist, not the Jew, and not the, the Gentile who was there and had no special revelation, the pagan nationalist. None of them are justified. But now you're ready for the good news. Look at verse 24 in the heart of our passage. Look at verse 24. Here's the good news. <laughs> Folks, here it is. And are justified by his what? Grace as a what? Gift through the redemption that is in who? So here's the fourth truth about justification. We are justified freely by his grace. All God's people said, glory. Amen? We are all given this standing, declared righteous by the only opinion that ever matters in the universe, God's because he has given it to us freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What we have here is the word freely that Jesus used in John 15, 25 when he said, people hate me without a cause. That word cause is the same word as freely here. He's saying there is no cause for why we've been justified except for God's free grace. There's no ability for us to work for this 
In other words, to bring this to a conclusion, what keeps people from salvation most of the time is not so much their sin, but their good works. Please hear that. I'm speaking to some people who are not justified in this room. And primarily what's keeping you from being declared righteous by the one that matters, God, is not your sin as much as your good works. You are bringing something to God. I mean, this is what separates the gospel from every other worldview, every other religion. Every other religion and worldview says, I've worked up and I've developed my own righteousness. God, will you please accept me? But the gospel says, no, there's been a righteousness provided for you outside of you that's available to you freely by God's wonderful, rich grace, that favor we don't deserve. In fact, we deserve punishment and wrath. But if you will simply believe, you will be rescued. You see, the law was never intended to help you be justified. Look at the last verse again of or, the, or verse 20, the last phrase. Through the law comes the what? Knowledge of what? The law was never intended to justify you. If you go to the doctor and you've been running a high temperature of 104 or whatever, and you come in and say, I've been running a temperature of 104, and the doctor says to you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home, or in the next five days, I want you to keep taking your temperature five more days in a row. And what are you going to say? Why did I come here? <laughs> I mean, the, the thermometer only tells me there's a what? A problem. That thermometer has no ability to treat the symptoms, to treat the real issue that you're dealing with. The law was never intended to rescue or justify anyone. It was to remind the religious, the, the self-righteous moralist, and the pagan, and the Jew, all of us to say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. What will make justification a shouting word for us, folks? It will be reminding that God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He's of pure eyes and to behold evil. And our God is just. He is righteous. And how does a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous without becoming unrighteous himself, it's because of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness by his perfect life. And then he substitutionally placed his life on the cross for our sins, rose powerfully, and now whoever turns from their sin and believes in him, trusts in him, is born again. He, he's both holy and just, but the good news of the gospel is he's loving and merciful. Amen? Have you come to God with this understanding that I cannot be accepted with any of my own righteousness? No one has knocked long enough in heaven and God's going to say, I'm going to just let you in. I'll overlook your sin. No, there's been a righteousness provided for you outside of you. The theologians used to call it an alien righteousness. That sounds kind of weird. But they're just saying it's not inside of me. It's not something I develop on my own. It's something God has provided outside of me. But the only way for me to be justified and to appreciate this word is to remember these four facts. Say them with me again. Justification is understanding that that means I need to keep the law of God. What? Perfectly. And this justification is about whose sight? God's. And how many people are in the category of keeping it perfectly in God's sight? Zero. 
But how can we be justified? Freely by his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Romans. Lord, we just are humbled by the density and the profundity and the massive amount of mercy and love and grace that's in this passage. We see ourselves as guilty. It's like seeing ourselves in a photo and believing that the photo wasn't very good, but it's true. It's, it's exactly the way that we are. Our hearts are wicked, desperately wicked. We don't seek after you. But we realize you've been seeking after us and you've found us. And you've awakened our heart. We pray today, Lord, if there are those, and I'm sure there are some in this room that have never acknowledged their need of being justified in your sight, They've tried to create their own righteousness and say, Lord, please accept me. I pray today that they would no longer bring anything in their hands, but would completely cling to the cross of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. We ask, Lord, as believers, that you would give us appreciation and love. May words like justification become shouting words, weeping words, words of joy and grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.